last time, if you recall, I mean, it's been a couple weeks ago, so we've all slept a few times since then. We, we left off on quite a cliffhanger in John 6, 44, because we were looking at this concept of the father drawing people. And this is obviously the reason we're slowing down in the, well, I mean, we're always a little slow, but I, the reason we're slowing down a little bit more is because it's such a debated passage. And so we want to just kind of take our time working through it, uh, looking at what the passage says, what it doesn't say, uh, and all those kind of things. But so we don't lose the forest for the trees. Remember, Jesus is in the middle of a dialogue with a large group of people in Capernaum. And this immediately follows the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 the day before. This was just the day before. And because he fed them and because it was Passover time, Jesus uses this metaphor of he he is the bread of life. He's living bread. So he uses this bread metaphor um, to represent him. And this is why this discourse is known as the bread of life discourse. You'll look that up. You'll see that in John 6. This is what all commentators call this. Now, for those that are avoiding carbs, this is good carbs right here. This is the bread of life, good carbs, doesn't add anything to your figure, but it can add something to how long you live <laughs> in terms of eternal life. And so this is good carbs as Jesus is doing this. But ultimately, this whole conversation is designed to do one thing, clarify his identity for his crowd. He's trying to clarify for them who he is, what he's there to do, and the fact that he is indeed God's authorized representative on earth as the Messiah. This is what he's trying to do. This is the clarification. So we've got to move through quick through the review quickly, or otherwise um, we're not going to get very far today. So just in, in John 6, 44, let's read it. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And we kind of went through this last time, we, we slowed down. I'm going to move a little bit quickly. But the word no one is a compound word in the Greek. It means not even one, not the least. And so simply put, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the condition of God drawing you happened. You didn't get there on your own. You weren't just seeking so hard after God on your own and God never intervened. God intervened and drew you. That's what we've got to understand from this passage. This condition has got to be met for anybody to come to Jesus or to put their faith in Jesus. Now, some people take that concept a little too far, and that's what we want to try not to do as we're studying through this. But he goes on to say, no one can come. And that word can is the Greek word dunamai. It means to have the ability by virtue of your own ability and resources. And no one has the ability to come to Jesus or put their faith in Jesus unless the condition of the Father drawing them is first Matt, this is what this passage is teaching. And so, again, the word for come, we've talked about this. It's erkomai used 12 times in this passage. But there is one time where erkomai is not used. We looked at that in verse 37. It was the Greek word heko. And we talked about the distinction and why he did that. But every time it's used in this passage, it talks about the process of coming to faith in Jesus Christ or believing in Jesus Christ. That's how this word is used in this passage. So he's saying, no one can believe in me unless the father draws him. That drawing action has to happen first. And so what it's basically saying is no one has the capacity or ability to believe in Jesus in and of themselves. And before you think that we're gonna go hardcore Calvinist on you, we're not, because we don't believe this is what the passage teaches. In fact, we wanna be really careful with the passage um, and really sensitive to, to what Jesus is saying here. Try to consider the context and show that we don't believe that's what it's teaching, actually. In fact, we, we looked at this last time in the scriptures. It's very clear. This is not an isolated truth in John 6, 4, that unbelievers are simply not wired for sound. They are not, re, they don't respond to spiritual truth. They don't understand spiritual truth. You see that in the book of 1 Corinthians. They think it's foolish. They think it's uh, too simple. They think it's, it's ridiculous. They don't see any value in what Jesus did. It doesn't even compute. For them, because first of all, they don't recognize the precarious situation that they're in. In fact, unbelievers oftentimes they just don't accurately evaluate the whole topic of righteousness. They they don't evaluate the fact that God's standard is perfection. And so, when you talk to unbelievers, oftentimes they're not sure that they're good enough to go to heaven, but they're a hundred percent sure they're not bad enough to go to hell. It's really interesting how that works. So they just don't have an accurate understanding of. Righteousness. And so the Father, if they don't understand this, they're not going to trust in a Savior. You know, when I go swimming in a pool, I don't wait for the lifeguard to drag me out. Why? 
because I think I can swim. Now, I don't swim very well. It looks more like a doggy paddle sometimes, but I can get to the side of the pool on my own, right? But if I realized I was drowning, then guess what? I realized my need for a savior. And see, unbelievers never realize their need for a savior because again, they don't think they're bad enough to go to hell. Their neighbor is, but not them, right? That's how that typically works. Or Hitler is, but not them, you know? And that's how that typically works. So God has got to draw. No one, no one will pursue God unless God first draws them. By the way, we just saw this on full display with this crowd that Jesus is talking to. This is in the context of a conversation, okay? They concluded, if you recall, there was no way that Jesus was from heaven because they knew his earthly father and mother. They say, wait a minute, we know Joseph, we know Mary. Uh, they don't bring it out here, but they know his brothers and sisters. We've seen Jesus grow up. We, we know this guy's not from heaven. And so they are rejecting the very drawing of the father right now. They're rejecting it right as we're reading this passage. In fact, they would not come to Jesus, meaning they would not believe in him. We saw that last week. And so they were not convinced. After everything the father was doing to draw them, they remained unconvinced. But understand this, they were rejecting Jesus in spite of the father's drawing, not because the father was not drawing them. Does that make sense? He's, he, is, he is making an effort to draw them, but they reject his draw. Now, some people say, well, you can't reject the draw of God. But it, the passage doesn't bear that out. In fact, if you go back to verses 35 and 36, he talks about how they, he who believes, and then he says, I have said to you in verse 36, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Those are both in the active voice, meaning that the crowd that Jesus is talking to is making the active choice to reject what he's saying and to reject his person. It, it, if if they could, couldn't do that, it would have to be in the passive voice. There's lots of things working in this passage that don't lend itself to a reformed interpretation. It just doesn't as we look at it. In fact, we see this all over the scriptures. Romans 1.18 is another great one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. That's unsaved people who do what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Active voice. They suppress it. They can reject it. They can deny it. They can hold it down. They can act like it's not there, but that's their choice. They're making that decision to do that. So let's look at the condition of drawing a little bit further because really this is where the debate, I think, comes in. This is the key word, by the way, unless, because it means unless God did this, nobody would trust in Christ. And so we look at this this work, this condition that God is doing, this drawing of people to his son to do what? To allow them the ability to trust in Jesus Christ. And so one of the things we've got to understand is, and we'll look at this as we look at the meaning of the word. Maybe I'll just bring that up. This word draw means to draw toward, but it doesn't necessarily require the, the notion of force. And this is what people do with Greek words all the time. They, you know, and we do this. I mean, we all, we all have to be careful. Let's be honest. It's not just some people, like some people out there. It's like, some people in here, including myself, we have to be careful with this kind of stuff. When you look at a word, sometimes it's got a wide semantic range of meaning. And, and, and instead of just picking the one you like the best, picking the one that fits your theology the best, we are, as Bible interpreters, that would include yourself as you read the Bible and try to understand it for yourself, you are tasked with the, the deal of taking this semantic range of meaning and understanding the context and then picking the best one that fits with the context, not the best one that fits how you feel or fits your theology. And this is oftentimes what this word means because it doesn't have to mean force, but it can mean force. In Acts 16, it says that this crowd seized Paul and dragged him to prison. That's probably force, <laughs> right? It, that can be communicating that word. But it's also used uh, when Peter drew his sword, Okay. So there, and it's also used to, to guide somebody to, to look or to, to, to gently coerce somebody to come with you. That, it, the word is used that way too. And so we have to go to the context to understand what it's meaning. But force isn't always communicated in this word. In fact, drawing doesn't have to include force. It, it, it doesn't force somebody to believe. In fact, we see that in this passage. God is drawing this audience. They are not believing. He's not forcing them to believe, but he is 
drawing them and he's giving them the ability to choose. He's presenting an argument, a persuasive argument, because not only did the Old Testament testify of Jesus Christ, everything they were seeing in person should have went back to a Bible passage in their Old Testament. So, oh, that, yeah, that's him. That's him. He's doing this. He's doing this, pointing it back. And then they're watching it in live. Uh, I mean, watching it live, right? Not, not, I was about to say live stream. Goodness sakes. They're watching. That's what threw me off there. They're watching him live do all these things that the Old Testament predicted the Messiah was doing. This was designed to draw them, but they were rejecting it. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily mean force. And we've got to understand that it may be implied, but it doesn't necessarily mean it. In fact, we're going to see a verse here in a second that if it meant force, if it meant that it automatically resulted in believing, then we'd have to teach universal salvation, which clearly the Bible doesn't teach that. So we'll look at that in a second. Here's the question I think we've got to ask and answer when it comes to the drawing concept of the father. Who does the father draw? When does he draw? In other words, who? Like, is it just a certain few? You know, that's a theology that, that God chose some in the past and that those are the some that he would draw. Is it just a certain few? Did he draw all? Does he draw, you know, again, who, who does he draw? When does he draw? Did he do it in eternity past? Is he doing it in the present? What does he draw them with? Is there a, a specific something that he uses to draw people to his son? And how does he do it? What are the tools and methods of drawing? Well, this is where we left off last week. So that was just a review. I better move. Who does the father draw? One of the things that we, we see is the scriptures are going to teach us that God draws everybody. That's hard to take for some people. They, they don't believe that. They, they don't believe that because their theology will not allow that to be the case. But let's just kind of go through some, I think, some proving scriptures to show that he does draw everybody, that he does what I would say clear the deck for everybody to be able to choose to believe or be able to choose to reject him. How does God do this or who does he draw? Well, the same exact word draw is used in John 12, 32. One of the, one of the great things about Bible study is when you're trying to, to understand how a word is used, the first place you start is in the book or the chapter that you're in. It's always a great place to start. It doesn't mean it's always going to give you the sense of the meaning, but sometimes it does. And so this is great. John 12, 32, the same exact word draw is used indicate that if Jesus is lifted up, then he will draw all to himself. In fact, here's John 12, 32. I included 33 for a reason. We'll read that. He says, and I, this is Jesus speaking, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all. And you'll notice peoples is, is italicized. It's added by the translators for clarity. It's not there in the Greek. But I will draw all to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Okay? One of the things we need to understand is about this, this verb will draw. It is a future active indicative. You know what that means? Guaranteed promise when the condition is met. Now, what condition is addressed here in John 12, 32? If I am lifted up from the earth. Well, has Jesus been lifted up from the earth? What does that mean? Well, that's why verse 33 is up there. He said this signifying by what death he would die. Did Jesus die on the cross for your sins 2,000 years ago? Yes, then he was lifted up. Guess what God just promised? If he's lifted up, guess what he is going to do? He's going to draw all to himself. That's why we say, who is God drawing? He's drawing all. In other words, he is clearing the deck of this inability to believe. No one will ever have an excuse that says, well, I couldn't believe. I didn't have the ability to believe because God's going to say, I lifted up my son. I crucified my son. And through that act, I will draw all to myself. This is exactly what God the Father is saying here. Additionally, we learn in John 16, 8 through 11, that the Spirit of God is convicting not a few, not many, not some. He's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And thus, I believe he's drawing the world to put their faith in Jesus Christ. John 16, 8 through 11 says this, and when he has come, this is the spirit of God, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. By the way, of sin. What sin? Why not sins, plural? 
Why is he just convicting of sin? Because there's only one sin that will send you to hell. And it's not homosexuality. It's not transgenderism. We get all worked up. We let, we let media work us up about all these things. And I get it. It is sin, but it's not the sin that will send you to hell. It's not murder. It's not adultery. Those are all heinous sins, but that's not the sin that will send you to hell. Let's let the word of God define it. Of sin, because what? They do not believe in me. That is the one sin that will send somebody to hell. Rejection of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for them. Rejection of God's solution in the person of Jesus Christ. I've met a couple people at the fair, and guess what? They like Jesus. They're just not trusting in him alone for their solution. They still think there's something they got to do behavior-wise to earn it. They are refusing God's offer of salvation by grace, and thus they are rejecting God's solution because God has one solution. You get there by grace or you don't get there at all. Grace means God is designed to give you something you don't deserve on the basis of what Jesus Christ did for you, and to spit in the face of that is to spit in the face of the one who hung on a tree and died for your sins. And that's what we don't want to do. We want to put our trust in the one who died for us and rose again. And you know, the spirit of God wants people to put their trust in the one who died for them and rose again. And he's offering it to the entire world because they do not believe in me of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know what the word convict means? It means to prove some, someone wrong and thus to shame them. Now it, is the spirit of God just trying to go around the world and make everyone feel bad? And it's like, it reminds me of my, my old, you know, WWF days, watching that with my brother growing up. It's like, is, is the spirit of God just dropping elbows off the top turnbuckle on it, on the world, just trying to make them feel bad? No, he is trying to convict them, to shame them. Why? To draw them to the correct answer and solution. That's why he's doing it. He's not doing it because he gets some joy knocking somebody down making them feel bad. Oh, you're not good enough to go to heaven. Ha, ha, ha. No, you're not good enough to heaven, but God's got a solution. That's the whole goal. He's drawing. And so he's using the convicting work of the spirit of God to draw all people. In fact, it's the drawing work of the Godhead that makes it possible for all unbelievers to become believers. You know, my friend Brad Smith is here today. And he, one of the things that he said for many years that I've picked up on is, is this, God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. I love that statement because it's true. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He's cleared the deck so that everyone has an opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So God draws so that all can believe. No one will have an excuse for not believing. In fact, again, going back to the context, God was working in this audience to draw them to Jesus Christ. They weren't responding. They weren't responding to previous revelation about him in the Old Testament. They weren't responding to current revelation through his teaching, through his signs and wonders. They weren't responding. They're rejecting this draw, although God was working to do so. Now, when and with what does the Father draw people to himself? You know, uh, unfortunately, there's no time stamp in this verse uh, in, in terms of telling us when he does it. But what's really cool is there is a time stamp given in John 12, 32. And the timestamp is when the finished work of Christ is accomplished, God will draw all men to himself. Now, it's not to say that he never drew anybody before that. Obviously, he's doing that right here. But what I believe he's doing with the cross, it's the final ace card. It's the persuasive argument along with the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's the data point that's designed to just push people over to the edge and say, okay, that's true. I, I believe. I will trust in that kind of savior. I remember, again, just a young lady last year at the fair said, when I finished sharing the gospel, she said, what you said makes me love Jesus more. Amen. That is exactly the response the gospel message is designed to, 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 to produce. It should make us love him more. It should make us appreciate him more. When we understand the gravity of the situation and what he truly accomplished for us. But again, John 12, 32 through 33 he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw. So there's our timestamp, right? This is when he draws all to himself. And, and again, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. 
So the completion of the finished work of Jesus Christ is all that was needed. This was the final data point, if you will, the final persuasive argument that needed to happen to make, a, uh, basically to enable all people to make a volitional decision to trust in Jesus Christ or to reject him. They have that that choice. So it's very important to understand. So it, again, as I said, it's not to say God didn't draw before he did. And we'll see that actually in the very next verse. He's going to give us a way that God was drawing before. But this is the ace card. This is the final persuasive argument designed to convince everybody. Nothing more will be given. In fact, what does Jesus tell an audience of Pharisees kind of in the midway part of his ministry? Say, show us a sign. Show us a sign. He says, we, I won't show you one more sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah, right? That, that's it. It's the resurrection. That's going to close it out. Final data point to draw all people to himself. Now, how does the father draw? Well, we could spend an entire sermon on this, but let me just briefly say he's active in the process of drawing people to Jesus and his finished work. We're going to see in verse 45, this is one method we'll kind of get in there. He's active in teaching people about Jesus through his word, through messengers, these kind of things, uh, confirming and validating his identity. Uh, and so this is obviously the drawing work that is that Jesus's presence audience is rejecting. Uh, additionally, and after great personal cost and offense to himself, the love of God pursues sinners, actually draws unbelievers to his great work on the cross, right? Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, right? While we were still unsaved and rejecting him, Christ died for us. And so he uses these things to draw. Now, uh, a great chart was put together by a friend of mine. Some of y'all know him, Cody Hughes. He's uh, he's big in alliteration, so you'll if you like that, you're going to love this chart. It's on our John QR code, by the way, so it'll be on our website if you want to look at this later. I'm not going to go through it in detail now, but how does God draw him to uh, all people, to himself? And he's got this alliterated through conscience. He's got some verses you can look at uh, through creation, through commandments, through conviction, through counsel. Uh, again, here's our ace card, the cross, through couriers, and through calamity. These are all ways that God is drawing. These are the how of God is drawing people to his son in our day. Obviously, the cross being that, that final ace card or that data point, hopefully to, to push people over to trust in Jesus Christ. And so what will happen if somebody trusts in Jesus Christ? Well, this Jesus is now kind of getting back to the conversation he was in before they started murmuring. Remember, they were complaining about him in verses 41 through 43. They're griping about him. And so he kind of brings it back to where he, he was before then. And what he's going to say is the one who comes to me or the one who trusts in me, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. In fact, remember back in verse 39 through 40, we said those were parallel verses, the very last phrase in both of those, but I should raise him up in the last day, verse 40, and I will raise him up at the last day. And notice what they complain about in verse 41. They said, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They weren't even listening to the last part. Jesus is trying to tell them, you, you know the passage that you'll quote in your perfect orthodoxy that there will be a resurrection at the last day? You quote it from Daniel chapter 12. I'm him. I'm the one that's going to do that. I'm the one that's going to raise the dead. This is what Jesus is trying to tell them. And he basically says the condition that needs to be met to be raised to eternal life is to believe in me. That's it. And this is what he's saying here at the end of verse 44. We'll raise, again, just a great passage. This whole chapter is such a great chapter on eternal security, knowing that once you trust in Jesus, you have eternal life, which lasts forever, and you will be raised to eternal life with him. Because this word, will raise, is once again used in the future active indicative. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. The moment somebody believes. There's no uncertainty communicated here. Whoever comes to Jesus by faith will be resurrected by him, period. No contingencies, no commas or buts or ands or anything, no semicolons, period. We might even put an exclamation mark, right? I mean, this is what he's saying. He wants you to be assured you are not good enough to get, go to heaven on your own. If you think you got to be gooder to go, or you think you can't be badder to go, or you think you got to do something in the future to go, you're missing the point of what he's saying here. He's, he's just honest. You're not good enough. You need me to get you there. You're drowning. You need a lifeguard, right? This is what he's trying to teach here. And he's saying, look, I save because I'm a savior. That's what I do. 
That's, that's what he's saying. Saviors save. They save. I mean, they save. Lifeguards don't save people that can swim. But Jesus wants you to know nobody can swim. We all need to be saved. And this is what Savior's doing. So he's just convincing us that he's the one that's going to raise them. He is the one who's going to raise the dead. And so let's look at one of the methods God uses to draw men to Jesus uh, as we leave verse 44. Verse 45, he says, it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who is heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This seems to be the, the how of drawing that Jesus actually uses here. How, if they were asking, how does God draw? Jesus is full, further explaining this to them right now in verse 45. This is one of the methods that God uses. He teaches them truth about his son. Notice again that the teaching is not limited to some. You see that in verse 45? It's written in the prophets and they shall, how many be taught? All. Again, you, you don't see any remote concept of exclusivity here. That's what I'm saying. When, when, when people read exclusivity here, it, it, they're really bringing something foreign to the context that fits their theology, but doesn't fit their Bible interpretation very well. And so he teaches all. They all shall be taught by God. And he's clarifying again what he means by drawing. Now, why would Jesus quote this Old Testament passage here? And I think pretty specifically, he quotes from Isaiah 54, 13, kind of an interesting passage. It's in the middle of a passage reassuring the Israelites of the gracious love of God in spite of their past failures and rejection of him. So in contrast to those who teach that God only draws some, this indicates that God is working in, moving in, teaching, and drawing all to come to Jesus Christ. So what's the connection to this Old Testament verse? I think it's simply this. God's doing this in spite of the fact that this particular audience is continually murmuring, continually complaining, and they have a complete lack of willingness to believe or trust in anything that Jesus is saying. God is still drawing. God is still working to draw them. And one day he's going to lift his son up in the near future from this point. He's going to lift his son up on a cross and he wants to bring that final ace card down and say, boom, there's your Messiah. Go look at Isaiah 53. Go look at Psalm 22. This is him. This is the one I sent. You crucified him. But even though you crucified him, guess what? All of Peter's audience in Acts 2 were there that day. Most of them. They were the ones shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter said, this man whom you crucified, God is raised from the dead. And he tells this crowd, if you believe in him, you'll have remission of sins. You kidding me? God will still give me a chance. I crucified the Messiah. Yes, he will, because he's a God of love and grace. And there's no sin that can outrun the grace of God. Even crucifying the Messiah. It's just amazing, the love of God. And this is why he quotes it. But notice how he does this. This is God's desire. You know, we saw God's will in verses 39 through 40 that whoever uh, believes in Jesus will be raised on the last day. That's God's will. But notice also God's desire for all men here. In fact, this word therefore brings us to the summary of, of Jesus's thoughts here in verse 44. This first part, man's first part, everyone who has heard. And this, this word hear or, or heard translated here means to hear with attention, to hear with the ear of the mind. If you've ever talked to somebody while they're surfing on their phone, it's the opposite of that, <laughs> right? They're, you've ever talked to somebody, you can just tell they're not really engaging with what you're saying. Oftentimes I used to do that in, in math class. It's really interesting because with, with a room full of high school kids, you know, and I got stuck my first year of teaching, man, I don't know what they're, they gave me 34 ninth graders in one class. I don't know how I survived, but I, by God's grace alone. And, um, but 34 ninth graders. And what I found is if I tried to yell over them, oftentimes they wouldn't hear me. But if I didn't say anything and got really quiet and just stared at them, the entire room would get silent. It was the weirdest, it was the weirdest thing because I knew they weren't listening to me. So I was waiting for them to give me the ear of their mind, you know, because I'm actually trying to help them pass. I didn't actually take any joy in failing anybody. I was trying to help them. And so in this way, God wants people to hear him. 
In this case, they're listening to his teaching. They're ready to engage. They're ready to respond with what he's communicating. This is what we would call active listening. It's genuinely taking in what he's saying. Second part, he wants everyone to learn. This means to learn something, to understand something. But notice this, this word has a little bit more to it. It's with a moral bearing and responsibility to respond. You know, many people in our day learn things and have no intention of doing anything with it. They'll, they'll just learn, just take in information, but have no intention of responding to what they're learning. This says that they are learning with, an, with a desire to respond, to actually engage with what they're learning. In this case, again, they've learned something from the teaching of God Almighty, hopefully through the messenger of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that he has a plan to provide eternal life as a free gift. He wants them to understand that. He wants them to learn that. He wants them to respond to that. And that gets us to really the desired response or the desired conclusion. Everyone who has heard and has learned comes to me. Again, comes is this Greek word, erkomai. It talks about, it's basically believing. It's a present middle indicative, which again, indicates what? The one who hears, the one who learns, chooses of their own volition to come to Jesus. They have now the ability Why do they have the ability to believe? Because God has drawn them through teaching them. That's the the desire of God is that people would respond. And that's what I love about our God. He's drawing all mankind by teaching all mankind. He wants all mankind to hear him, to learn from him. And then he wants all of mankind to respond to him. Now, will all mankind respond to the Lord in his great act 2,000 years ago? It's unfortunate, but the answer is no. That's why hell will be full because people will reject the the free gift offer of salvation on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Why did they do that? I don't know. I don't know. There's a a myriad of reasons. It probably comes back to pride in some ways would be my my overarching summary of why because they feel like they've got to do something. They can't just take something for free. And And we have a problem with taking things for free in our culture um, but salvation's free, not because it's cheap. It costs Jesus everything, but it's free to you. That's, that's the difference. It's, we're not preaching a cheap grace. It's worse than that. It's free grace. <laughs> By very definition, it's free. It's not cheap because it costs Jesus his very life. So it's very costly, but it's free to you. You don't have to pay for it because he paid for it in full. Jesus makes an interesting point as we move forward to verse 46. Because some might think that, that God needs to do more in drawing than just teaching. He needs to do more than just putting words in a book. And so Jesus is going to kind of address that by, by saying that no one has seen the Father. Okay? And he says it this way. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. And so apparently... What we learn from this passage is people can hear and learn from God without having some mystical vision of him. Some people think that, and, and Jews thought this, show us another sign. Remember? Remember earlier, they're like, hey, feed us again. <laughs> feed us some more. Show us another miracle. Show us another sign. It's all this, this emphasis on mystical uh, type things. I mean, even, even just talking to people at the fair, it's like, yeah, I was walking down the street and I said, God, show me a sign. And I looked over and um, this, this truck rode by that said, God is love. And I was like, oh, that, that means I should go back to church. And I was like, I don't know if that, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's what that means or not, but it's like, we're, we constantly are like walking around and some of you might even do that at, you know, when you're looking for God's will and it's like, you know, Lord, where should I work? You know, should I work at, um, Chick-fil-A or should I work over here? And then right around the corner, you see a Chick-fil-A. You're like, well, that must be God's will. There's a, well, no, there's a Chick-fil-A on every corner. That's like, it's, that's probably not God leading you, you know? And so we do things like that. People do things like that. They're looking for a mystical sign. He's saying, no one has seen the Father. In fact, for Jesus's audience, this, this hearing and learning wouldn't have been through a mystical appearance, although the Messiah is there doing some pretty incredible miracles. It would have come through the Old Testament scriptures and it would have come through, again, him and God's representative on earth. This phrase has seen means they've never seen him. It's perfect tense. Never in the past with ongoing results. They've never seen him. And so he wants them to know that. And so he's going to use this statement. You know, Jesus, again, what is he trying to accomplish through this? And this is why I keep bringing this up in the intro. He's trying to clarify his identity. 
He's trying to clarify his origin. This is why he keeps circling back. So he uses this statement to circle back to this, his authority, identity, and origin. And you know who has seen the father? The son. <laughs> They've never seen the father, but the son has seen the father. And so he's this exception clause, if you will. In fact, he uses the same perfect tense when he says, I've seen the father, right? The, the, the one who's from God has seen the father. He's always seen the father. He's seen him at a point in time in the past. He continues to see him or know him. It, it, you might say it that way. Now, what's really interesting here, and if you like, if you like little nuances in Greek, you'll appreciate this. This is just kind of fun to see these little switches. You know, sometimes, uh, like we saw in verse 37, where Jesus switched to a different word for, for come, to, he switched to heko away from erkomai. But here he switches prepositions, which is really interesting. He, he's been saying, I am from God, I'm out of God, or I'm out of heaven, I come from. This word from is actually a different Greek preposition. It's the Greek preposition para, and it indicates this notion of immediate vicinity, proximity, and what it does is it reflects perfect unity and fellowship. It emphasizes nearness. It emphasizes fellowship. It emphasizes that you might even say, Jesus is saying, except he who is from God, he who is from the very heart of God. That's kind of what he's emphasizing here. He wants them to know that he's been in near proximity to the Father, that he is completely united with him in fellowship. And that's why they can trust what he's saying. That's why he can make these bold and audacious claims like, you'll never die. You have eternal life. I will raise him up at the, at the end. All that the father gives to me will arrive with me at the end. That's why he can make these bold statements because he's coming straight from the heart of the father. In fact, John described it this way earlier in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. And so the, the point is this. If you want to see God, look at the son. He, he's going to represent God to you. He is going to declare him to you. Everything that he is, everything that pleases him, he is going to declare that to you. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do with this audience. They're just missing the point. They cannot see the forest for the trees. Like, I can't listen. This guy, I know his mom. You know, his mom made brownies for the, you know, the school, whatever. I mean, I don't think they did brownies, but... You know, it's, it's like he's so familiar. It can't, it can't be him. And so Jesus is, is, again, emphasizing this. And he's going to make a little bit of a pivot in the conversation right here. It's really interesting. And I, and I think from this point forward in the conversation, because he's been back and forth a little bit, you see Jesus do this a lot. If people aren't getting it, people aren't getting it, people aren't getting it, Jesus just keeps ratcheting it up. He just ratchets it, ratchets it up a little bit. And so he's going to start taking it to another level. He's going to start going bold. He's going to come back to this metaphor of bread of life. And he's going to say something that's going to cost him some numbers. I, I remember I had a pastor friend preach uh, this passage and he called it how to lose a crowd. And that's, it's a great title. It's a great title. He's going to show us how you lose a crowd. He ratchets it up a little bit and we're going to see how he does that, and he's going to tie this into the bread of life or the bread of heaven to himself. But before he does that, he makes a very clear statement in verse 47. In fact, this is one of those statements, one of those verses we often memorize because it's just so clear and so, um, so direct. But in verse 47, Jesus says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, we've seen this word most assuredly a couple of times. It's it's two Greek words, amen, amen. All right, he uses this a lot to, to, to give a, an emphatic way of saying what I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. You can take this to the bank. What I'm about to say, you can trust with your life. It's kind of the idea. It's just this emphatic way of saying, listen to what I'm saying. I'm about to tell you something that you can take to the bank. And this is what he tells them. He who believes in me, Again, has everlasting life. This is our phrase that Jesus keeps using, uh, using pastuo ice, or John does in Jesus uh, in this gospel. It means to believe into. That's how you would literally translate these two words. I think the combination of them are used like 90, I didn't write it down. I think it's like 93 times in the book of John, this, 
this combination is used. It's what's called an articulated participle. It means it, it turns this into an adjective. And what that does is it describes someone. It describes the believing one or the believer in Jesus. It's the same form used in John 3.16, same form used earlier in verse 35. And so all it simply does is describes a person who will believe or who will ever rely upon Jesus. It doesn't give any indication on time, duration, how long, but we get from the context the implication of what he's talking about. In fact, what we're going to see a very consistent theme through the book of John is when Jesus talks about believing for eternal life, he's talking about a point in time, one time action, a transactional event. How do we know that? John 3, Jesus compares believing to one look on the pole, the serpent on the pole. Jesus in John 4 compares one drink to never thirsting again. And what he's going to compare it here to is one bite of this bread of life, you'll never hunger again. So it's, it's an indicating a one-time act with eternal results. And this is exactly what he's saying because he's going to say, has everlasting life. And this really gives us an indication of this because if you have something, present tense, right now, in this moment, and continually, that lasts forever, then how many times do you need to believe? Huh? Just one time. Now, we're not to say, oh, yeah, just believe in Jesus and go do whatever you want to. No, <laughs> believe in Jesus, be born into the family, and then continue relying upon him so that you can enjoy Jesus the rest of your life and prepare for eternity and live out the life that he's designed you to live. But you don't get into the family by behaving. You didn't get into your family by behaving. Mom and dad didn't run down to the hospital nursery and say, you know, I like that one. He's not pooping. He's not crying. He's not screaming. I'll take him home. That ain't how it works. You were born into your family. And then you've lived life from that point behaving in a certain way. Sometimes terribly. All these new parents with babies, don't you wish they would just listen to you when you tell them to go to sleep at night? Don't wake up for eight hours, please. They don't listen. The behavior just starts going haywire immediately, right? But they're not in your family because they go to sleep for eight hours. They're not in your family because they're going to buy you a house one day. They're not in your family because they're not going to run into a mailbox or uh, run into your fence or uh, let the dog out or forget to lock the door. They're not in your family because of their behavior. They're always got into your family through birth. Behavior affects fellowship, but not relationship. That's what we got to understand. So Jesus is saying you've got eternal life. In fact, if behavior could uh, disqualify you from eternal life, then eternal life wasn't that eternal to begin with. If you can do something five years from now that, where you could lose eternal life, you never had life that was eternal. It could never have been described as eternal. You have five-year life, and now you're getting in the realm of life insurance salesmen. I don't think we want to associate God with those kind of people. Just kidding. If you're a life insurance salesman, forgive me. It's, it's a joke. You know the jokes. Just like lawyer jokes. They're just out there everywhere. But you know, everlasting life, again, not to oh, belabor this point, but it describes life that goes on into the ages of time. It's never ending, which explains why this person will never face a death penalty. You know, you can't have everlasting life and also have the threat of facing a death penalty. Those two things are mutually exclusive, okay? It's like watching your weight and eating another cupcake. They just, they don't go together, right? They're mutually exclusive. If you're watching your weight, you're not jamming down three or four cupcakes. They just don't go together. Having eternal life and having the threat of a death penalty in the future don't go together. You either have eternal life with no death penalty or you don't have eternal life with a guaranteed death penalty. They never cross bounds. They just, they can't because these are promises of God based on the finished work of Christ, never based on your behavior. This is what we've got to get through in terms of what Jesus is saying here uh, as well. In fact, it's described and taught elsewhere that this type of life, eternal life is simply a gift. It's never earned. It's never merited. And by the way, if it's never earned, it's never merited, it can never be unearned or demerited. That's the whole definition of grace. Because if you could do something to lose it, then it wasn't grace to begin with because grace is unconditional. The second you put a condition on grace, it's no longer grace. It's just like everything else in the world. 
And, and a gift cannot be conditioned. If I give you a gift and say, here's a gift, but you owe me $10 a month for the next 12 months, it's not a gift. We all know that. For some reason, we get to the Bible, we see eternal life's a gift, and we're just like, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, yeah, buts. It, it means the same thing in the Bible. It actually, words mean something. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we all know this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you're not saved by grace, then you're not saved. Let me just tell you something. That's the only way anyone's ever getting to heaven. No one's going to burst through heaven's door and say, look how good I was. Look what I did for God. People say that all the time down here. No one's going to do that. It's going to be a long line of people pointing because of him, because of him. It's because of him. It's because of what he did for me. Everyone's going to be walking into heaven like this, pointing at the right hand of God to the man seated there. It's because of him. That's, that's how we're going to get into heaven. And that's grace. None of us deserve that, right? None of us deserve that. Now Jesus is going to return to his object lesson. We'll kind of, we'll move forward here. Verse 48, he's going to say, I am the bread of life. He's going back to this object lesson and when we get to verse 51, that's where he's going to get into trouble. He's going to, he's going to ratchet it up a little bit. He's going to take it too far. But I don't, I'm not saying that Jesus did anything wrong. It's just that the audience couldn't handle it when we get to verse 51. He says in verses 48 through 50, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. Now, we've talked about this a lot. Jesus uses this word, I am, it's ego a me in the Greek. It's it literally translated as I am, I am. Okay, it's going to tie his, his listeners back to Yahweh. It's going to tie his listeners back to Moses in the burning bush where Yahweh identified himself as the great I am. This is the name that Moses was designed to take back to the people. And this is very important because Moses is what they were comparing Jesus to. And, and in their mind, as they sit here and look at the Messiah, they said what Moses did was better than what you're offering. We like Moses' deal better. Why? Because he fed us physically for 40 years. You've only fed us once physically. So if you want to be like Moses, keep it coming. That's kind of their attitude. This is kind of their attitude as they look. They're missing the point. This is why, if you recall, they were, they were murmuring. And what Jesus is telling them is, is guys... I've always been the bread of life. I was the one who provided the manna in the wilderness. And now I want to provide you with bread that if you eat it, you'll never die. It's actually, I'm actually upgrading from Moses, right? And, and quite frankly, did the Israelites even like manna? They hated it after a while. And now these people are trying to act like, oh, we love that. Yeah, bring back Moses. I mean, it's just insane the way that they're thinking here. But obviously, they're thinking very horizontally uh, at this point. And so in this statement, Jesus is not only claiming that he is the bread of life, he's also claiming he's greater than Moses. Why? Because he's the Messiah. And guess what? If he's the Messiah, he is God. That's what he's saying here. All of that tied into that one phrase. Now, uh, they missed that at this point, but there's going to be a point in time where Jesus keeps talking and teaching in John chapter 8, then when he says, I am, they are going to get it. And they're going to pick up stones to try to kill him because they realize what he's claiming and what he's been claiming all along. And so Jesus just points out the historical record. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They're dead. <laughs> Go verify. Their graves are everywhere, right? We, we, we know that. Uh, again, manna was provided all throughout their wilderness wanderings. However, this bread did not provide eternal life. And that's true as the historical record uh, broke out. Now, I like what Tom Constable says here. He just had a nice wording that, that I just wanted to give him credit for. He said, the result of eating the manna was temporary satisfaction, but ultimately physical death. But the result of believing in Jesus was permanent satisfaction and no death. No death because even physical death results in what? Resurrection. Resurrection to eternal life. And so just a, a great comment there. And so this is what Jesus said. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Once again, he affirms his identity and his origin, thus claiming authority 
and the right to be listened to. Again, we're going back to really his main, I think, goal in having this conversation. So they understood where he was from. And he uses another illustration for believing. And this is, uh, again, another illustration of John eating this bread from heaven. And according to the gospel, John, as I mentioned, believing in Christ is described as a non-meritorious look. It's described as a one-time drink in John 4. It's described as a one-time act of eating in John chapter 6. And what he's trying to tell them is, guys, what I'm offering to you is way better than Moses. Moses isn't even on the JV team, right? And I'm the star of the varsity team. You know, it's just kind of, Moses didn't even make the cut. What I'm offering is so much better than Moses, but they're not uh, getting through this. And by the way, he says in these, illust- uh, in these illustrations, Lord Jesus Christ constantly portrays faith in himself for eternal life as a simple, instantaneous act rather than an ongoing activity. And the reason for that is this, the activity has already been done. The work has already been done. The behavior has already been accomplished. It's not your behavior, it was his behavior, and it's already done. And so it's this instantaneous act that when we realize what he accomplished for us, we simply say, you know what? I'm going to rely on him. If I got any chance to make it to heaven, it's going to be on the coattails of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I ain't got a prayer. I ain't got a prayer to get there. And I think many of us can relate to that. I think we're going to close there. We'll leave us on a, a little, another little cliffhanger. This one's more of a, you know, maybe a boulder hanger, not, not too much of a cliff, but um, because Jesus is going to start losing a crowd in verse 51. In fact, between verse 50 and 51, we see the peak of Jesus's ministry. And that point forward, it just goes down in terms of popularity. And so we'll pick that up next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the Lord Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. I thank you for the clear way and in clear manner in which he communicates. I thank you for your great love for us, the fact that you pursue us, that you draw, that you've cleared the deck so that we can believe. And I just pray, Lord, for everyone in this room that we would see the value that you see in what Jesus Christ accomplished for us, that, that even if we value it, that we would value it even more because of what he did for us. And so, Lord, I, we look to you this week. We have opportunities this week to share the gospel with so many in our community. We pray that even now you'd be preparing hearts, that you would be bringing people to us that would be willing to sit down. And, Lord, we would just be given clarity of speech that we would basically get out of the way and exalt your son and be able to describe for these people everything that he did, your great love for them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.